Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And I'm Chris Amici. And we're so glad you can join us. Today, we are very belatedly continuing with part of our New Year's series on Brussels sprouts, and we are focusing on the state of global democracy. Looking back at 2022, it was in many ways a very good year for democracy after several years characterized by rising authoritarianism. Signs of democratic revitalization include the electoral defeats of far-right politicians in France and Brazil, large-scale protest movements against the Iranian and Chinese regimes, and the success of Ukraine in defending its democracy against Russian aggression. At the same time, however, the far right has come to power in European countries like Italy and Sweden, while Hungary's drift towards authoritarianism has seemingly solidified with the re-election of Viktor Orban. Given these conflicting pieces of evidence, how should we assess the state of democracy around the world today? And what are the most serious threats from authoritarian actors to watch out for in this year ahead? Um, We're very glad to have both Larry Diamond and Sherry Berman join us today uh, to discuss these questions and more. Welcome, Larry, and welcome, Sherry. Glad to be here. Uh, Very briefly, briefly, Larry is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, Mossbacher, a senior fellow in global democracy at the Freeman Spoley Institute for the International Studies at Stanford University. And Sherry is a professor of political science at Barnard College, Columbia University. Her research interests include European history and politics, the development of democracy, populism and fascism, and the history of the left. Okay, so let's start with the very big picture. Um, Again, this idea that 2022 was a good year for democracy with obviously Putin's miscalculations, the protests I mentioned, Bolsonaro lost seemingly a lot of good stuff happened in, in 2022, Larry. So would you agree or how would you describe kind of where we are currently um, for democracy globally? Well, uh, I think your characterization is partially correct. Um, and in particular, I think the failure of authoritarian forces in Brazil First of all, to reelect a very authoritarian-minded president, and second of all, uh, their failure to overturn the results um, were certainly positive developments. Uh, but as in the United States, it was not a landslide against authoritarianism. It was a surprisingly uh, close uh, election, and I think that. Um, uh, Andrea, the positive developments you've noted, um, which are very much there and encouraging, uh, and all of the protests that have been welling up against uh, extreme authoritarianism in places like China and Iran and so on, uh, need to be balanced against the um, continuing creep of authoritarianism in many countries that have been democracies and are still on the decline, the most important of which, in part because it is the largest of which, is India. And that is continuing unabated. And I think some of the, I mean, we all wanna not be doomsayers and and take positive signs as well. I think it's very much a mixed picture now today. I think it's very much game on. But it's important that we not lose sight of the fairly quiet, silent, incremental 
degradations of democracy that are still going on. And I'm sure we'll get into this, but what I really think we need in the world now is a breakthrough from authoritarianism to democracy. And I think actually 2023 could be a more significant year in that regard. Uh, beginning, for example, um, if Erdogan loses the elections that will be coming at some point this year in Turkey. Yeah, we will definitely dig into some of these upcoming elections, Turkey, Poland, a couple of others. But Sherry, anything you would add or or disagree or I mean, how do you see it? So I don't disagree with the specific statements that Larry made, of course. Um, I would say, though, that um, my perspective may be a little different than Larry's because when I look at what's going on today, I do it very much through a historical lens. And I actually don't find a lot of the trends that we are seeing to be um, surprising. They're saddening, but they're not surprising. And I also don't think that the democratic backsliding that's been going on over the last you know, decade and a half has been quite as great as a lot of people have argued um, that it was. There's some new research out debating actually how much democratic backsliding that has been going on. And some of the data really is very ambiguous. Um, but what I will say is that, um, you know, following the incredible optimism that we had at the end of the 20th century, when we had this huge wave of democratizations, particularly obviously spurred on by the collapse of the Soviet Union, what, you know, people sort of don't fully take into account, perhaps not Larry, of course, but but many others, is that, you know, a lot of those countries that made transitions were not countries that, you know, from a sort of objective or, or perhaps not objective, but from a political science perspective, we would not have expected to be very um, good candidates for successful democratic consolidation. And so a lot of what we are seeing would um before the transition, perhaps would have been very easily predicted as very difficult cases for democratic success. So part, indeed, maybe most of what we have been living through through the last you know, decade and a half, I think is you know, not surprising, albeit saddening, backsliding that, um, you know, again, is not so much a reflection, I think, on you know, democracy as much as what it takes to make democracy work, if that makes some kind of sense. I think the cases that are most um, disturbing are the cases of um, previously seemingly consolidated democracies that have undergone backsliding. And here, I actually would say that the two most important cases are the ones Larry mentioned, obviously, India and the United States. But I will also, I do want to stress, perhaps to be a little bit optimistic, or at least balance the picture somewhat, that there really aren't other cases of advanced industrial democracies that have undergone significant backsliding. So just to jump off from what, what you started with, Andrea, I do not see any threat over the short to medium term uh, of, to democracy in Western Europe at all. The, the election of Georgia Maloney in Italy and the incredible success of the Sweden Democrats in Sweden these do not strike me as threats to democracy over the short to medium term. These are parties that I suspect a lot of us don't like, but they have undergone a really remarkable moderation over the last couple of decades, which I think actually speaks to the strength of democracy in Western Europe. That is to say the ability to turn what were once radical right parties, parties with neo-Nazi roots, parties with very, very... Um, unclear commitments into to democracy 
into what are, again, you know, parties that many of us don't like, but are committed to playing within the democratic rules of the game that have distanced themselves um, from their neo-Nazi or neo-fascist past. And, you know, again, they're not parties perhaps that we like, but they are not, I think, in any way over the short to medium term threats to democracy. So I think, you know, we want to keep both a historical and a comparative um, perspective when we think about what's going on um, with democracy today. Um, a number of the case studies that we mentioned earlier involved the defeat of populists. So if we think about Bolsonaro in Brazil, the second defeat of Andrej Babish in the Czech Republic, um, should we sound the death knell of the populist wave? Or what do you predict kind of moving forward um, for trends in populism moving forward in the next decade? Sherry, I don't know if we want to start. Oh, sure. I'm happy to, to take this first. I mean, if we're if we're limiting ourselves to Europe, both its Western and its Eastern half, right? I think, you know, populism is, a, you know, for lack of a better term, a style of politics. There are certainly, you know, enough overlaps between what we call populist parties to, to sort of put them in some broad general category. Um, they are anti-establishment. They are, um, you know, critical of the functioning of existing democracies, yada, yada. Um, there is an important distinction, though. I mean, in Eastern Europe, where democracies are young, where institutions, where democratic institutions and norms are weak, these movements have been much more clearly anti-democratic anti in nature. The most obvious examples of this, obviously, are, you know, Viktor Orban. We don't really have a functioning democracy in Hungary at all. Poland is, you know, sort of on the cusp, although, you know, there are a lot of folks who actually say that in a in an odd way, one of the benefits of the Ukraine war is it has more firmly anchored Poland in the quote unquote, you know, European or Western community of nations. I will have to see how that plays out. But these populist movements in Western Europe, these are movements that now get significant numbers of votes. Many of them have been around for quite a while. Marine Le Pen's um, National Front, now National Rally, has been around for decades. These parties are not going anywhere. The question is, what happens to them over time? Do they become um, parties that are committed to playing within the democratic rules of the game, but advocate a particular mix of policies, um, in which case they are not a threat to the democratic system? They are just uh, changes in the nature of um, political alternatives, you know, or in Eastern Europe, um, as we've seen, do they remain sort of with very questionable commitments to the democratic rules of the game? But populism is not going to disappear. It is, you know, it is part of the European political landscape. The only question in my mind over, again, I would say the medium term is in what direction do these parties develop? So <clears throat> let me build on that. It's an extremely interesting uh, answer. And I um, defer to Sherry completely on the Western European uh Parties. That's actually uh, somewhat encouraging news. I mean, we can add that the kind of populist um, impulse has certainly abated uh, in Britain. Um, a majority, I think a very clear majority of British voters now uh, appear to regret um, having taken the irrational plunge into Brexit. Boris Johnson has crashed and burned. I mean, there there has been a swing back to, um, I'd say, more normal and and interest based rational politics uh, in in Britain. Um, 
I disagree about Poland. Uh, I think that um, the integration into uh, the Western mission of defense of democracy in Ukraine and more broadly has really been extraordinary in Poland. I mean, you can't help but admire um, what the Polish government has done in uh, uh, embracing Ukraine, embracing your uh, Ukrainian uh, immigrants and uh, refugees, and really being a leader in the support of the Ukrainian war effort. But it's kind of a split screen show there. And the screen that isn't much showing is the ongoing war on the Polish judiciary, which is very, very serious. And that's what I mean about incremental. A lot of these assaults on democracy are very, very patient, um, but relentless. And now we have something which I, I think is one of the most alarming developments, and uh, I'd say has a heavy populist flavor to it um, uh, in Israel and the assault on the judiciary. And there's a real chance that um, it, it, this could lead to civil violence uh, in Israel, not just Israeli-Palestinian, which goes on, but within the deeply polarized Jewish community in Israel, and um, uh, that it, it could lead to the end of Israeli democracy. I mean, you've got hundreds of thousands of people taking to the streets on a regular basis. Um, you've got the leaders of the uh, former prime ministers, former heads of intelligence and, and the military, basically saying that the country must now rise up in civil disobedience. And if this goes through, soldiers should refuse to obey the orders of the prime minister. Um, this, is, um, this is so we never know uh, when the populist um, uh, impulse um, and the populist opportunity might rear up um, either for ideological reasons in terms of significant parts of Netanyahu's government um, who are racist and, um, you know, believe in greater Israel at the expense of everything else, or in the case of Netanyahu, who's just a pure political opportunist and wants to stay out of jail. How do nations, and we're talking about Europe here, how do nations look on the U.S., uh, you know, our course uh, since Trump? But as they're looking at us today in European capitals, how do, how do they define our course in terms of sliding or not? Uh, I, I mean, I'm happy to start. So, I mean, look, in Western Europe, the Trump, the Trump years were were seen as something of, you know, a sort of horror show, um, not only because Trump was obviously um, not interested in the Atlantic alliance or, or really any other kinds of democratic alliances, but also because the United States was recognized for better or worse as, you know, a critical world actor. And insofar as it was, as its own democracy was decaying and its ability to exert democratic pressures across the globe decline, the West Europeans felt themselves, you know, sort of very disappointed and very exposed. So those years were seen uh, as something that had to be endured. And, um, you know, a, a concern about the United States' future was very much at the top of political conversations in Western Europe. Now, again, in Eastern Europe, 
um, would-be dictators, um, uh, populists, if you want to call them, like Orban and Peace and Justice in Poland. These were big Trump fans, both because their commitments to democracy were also really, you know, tenuous to non-existent, and also because the illiberalism that he also espoused, and I don't want to conflate those two things, I don't think they're exactly the same, that is to say, illiberalism and anti-democratic behavior, um, were things that they wholeheartedly supported. Um, And so for them, you know, Trump was quite congenial. Um, And, you know, so that did not seem to bother them very much. And because at the very best, these kinds of populists, again, if you want to call them that, have very thin definitions of democracy, that is to say, ones that are more or less equivalent to some very simple form of majority rule. Trump's behavior, the way he came to power and the way he acted in power were much less problematic for them because they very much matched their own views, like I said, of, you know, both the policy profile that they preferred and the very simple view of democracy that they claim to be, um, you know, sort of working under. So, um, you know, again, it really depended on the kind of regime. In Western Europe, Trump was a horror show and a really, really clear and present danger. And in Eastern Europe, particularly for populists and, and, uh, you know, authoritarian minded leaders and parties, the Trump era was quite congenial. Larry, let me tweak the question just slightly and have you weigh in, but which is to say, we know in some parts of Europe, they look at the United States and worry about what's happening over here. Should Europeans worry? I mean, I know you just had a co-authored piece in Foreign Affairs that talk about the threats to American democracy. The title is, I'm going to pull it up, American democracy is still in danger. Um, What do you see as the remaining um, still underlying threats to democracy here at home? And should Europeans be worried? A very good restatement of my question. Thank you. (laughs) I think we should um, all be very concerned. Let's put it that way. Um, about the health and persistence uh, of democracy in the United States. We're a very severely polarized country um, uh, to the level of what Jennifer McCoy has and Murat Sommer have described as um, pernicious polarization. Um, I, I've seen fairly recent polling data on this and 70% of Republicans still believe that um, Trump won the 2020 election. Um, Really, I think, shocking uh, percentages of both Democrats and Republicans, up to 20 to 25%, believe it's okay to use violence to, um, uh, under some circumstances, to advance their political objectives, or to use other undemocratic means like um, direct personal harassment. And I think our democratic culture has eroded over time and needs to be repaired in a very deep um, and and patient way. And, um, you know, there's a very good chance that the uh, leader, symbol, and quite possibly architect uh, of the assault on the democratic process uh, in the 2020 presidential election and its aftermath, Donald Trump may again be uh, the Republican nominee for president. Uh, He has a very substantial lead in the public opinion polls at this point. 
And this man, I think, has now clearly revealed himself to be anti-democratic. I don't think there's any ambiguity about this any longer. The fact that one of the two political parties in the United States could be thinking uh, of nominating again someone who is so deeply disgraced, who I think has very probably committed illegal uh, acts, and uh, who tried to overturn the legitimate uh, result of uh, a democratic presidential election in the United States, and then sat there uh, for hours um, in the dining room of uh, off his uh, Oval Office and watched in rapt attention uh, while violent demonstrators were uh, besieging the Capitol disrupting the uh, electoral process and threatening the lives of members of Congress and his own vice president. I mean, it's just jaw dropping. So um, are we out of the woods? By no means, in my view. Let me, um, I want to ask actually both of you. Um, so that's what's happening here at home. But how would you grade the Biden administration's efforts on supporting democracy beyond our borders? Um, and I, you, I maybe that's the bigger question, but I'd love to hear from both of you too. Obviously, we here on Brussels Sprouts have spent a lot of time um, talking about analyzing, assessing the war in Ukraine. And I would also love to hear from both of you how you would articulate the stakes of Ukraine through this lens of democracy kind of globally. Why is it important um, through this democracy versus autocracy lens? So, I mean, I want to wholeheartedly also just second what Larry said, which is we, we need to be very cautious in the United States. And those people who really are small D Democrats first really need to think very carefully about um, our political behavior over the next several years, because our country remains, you know, very much in a uh, a difficult um, and dangerous position. Um, you know, as far as Ukraine is concerned, I mean, essentially what has happened is we have a country that is that has undergone even further autocratization over the past years, as I'm sure everyone who's listening to this podcast is aware, and has now turned that autocratization into international aggression against a country that, while nowhere near a well-functioning democracy, was attempting, you know, the very difficult and long-term transition to um, a freer type of regime, one that was closer to the West. And by West, I don't just mean, you know, actual ties to um, to the European Union and potentially over the very, very long term, something like NATO, but was attempting again to turn itself into an advanced um, industrial democratic nation. And so to allow an autocratic country like Russia to try to export its own repressive politics to a neighbor is an offense against not just democracy, but against the world where, you know, borders are not changed by deep of uh, by deep of violence. I mean, that is just something that everybody should be concerned about. I will say, though, that, you know, as far as kind of how the war has also changed democracy, these things are always very, um, you know, there's always a very difficult clash between, um, you know, what you might want to call national security interests and, you know, what your, I don't know, what your morals are. So just listening, for instance, yesterday to the German news, Olaf Scholz, the German chancellor is in India, listening to him 
refer to Modi as a fellow Democrat was really very difficult. Now, again, Schultz knows what's going on in India, but India remains a very pivotal nation in this conflict because um, it has a lot of incentives to play nice with Russia. And so Schultz feels he has to say certain kinds of things to not antagonize Modi and the Indian government further. And I understand that. But as a small D Democrat, again, knowing what is going on in India, that is a very, very difficult thing to hear. And I think, you know, one of the tough things about being someone who pays too much attention to politics is, is that you realize that there's often really no easy answers, that politics is a question about trade-offs and, and least bad alternatives. And um, I could certainly criticize this kind of rhetoric and behavior on the part of Schultz and other leaders towards marginal, very marginal leaders like Modi with regards to anything that resembles democracy. Um, but, you know, this these are the kinds of things that um, come up in politics all the time, and we have to really, you know, think carefully um, about. So, um I, I think that's that's very wise. Policy and foreign policy is about trade-offs. And there's also, you know, as you funnel up to the top of the Secretary of State and then the President himself, there's limited bandwidth. I mean, these are human beings that only have so many hours in a day and so many places they can visit. And Ukraine has been a giant sucking sound uh, that has diverted attention away from a lot of other important parts of the world. And then necessarily, we haven't discussed it yet, um, we're having to pivot uh, continually a, a lot of energy attention. And I think we need to pivot much more military force um, to East Asia uh, to defend and deter Taiwan, which is potentially the next Ukraine and a worse one uh, in terms of um, potentially its ability to defend itself, and perhaps much more imminently than the 2027 uh, date that American uh, foreign policy and security planners have generally been working with as a plausible date by which the uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party state might feel itself militarily ready to attack Taiwan. On the question of how to grade the Biden administration's democracy promotion efforts, I would give it a B. I mean, the Summit for Democracy has focused useful global attention on the issues and uh, has surfaced some of them. And it's got some initiatives and working groups on important matters like technology and democracy. But, um, you know, and of course, the defense of, of Ukraine has been uh, the lead element of the, if you will put it this way, fight for freedom in the world. But on Ukraine itself, um, I think we've been a little bit slow and a little bit inadequate to get all the weapons that Ukraine really needs to defend itself. Um, I'm more sympathetic to um Zelensky's uh, appeals for more and more rapidly. Uh, I think we should be invoking the Defense Production Act to um, uh, produce ammunition and supplies on a much more uh, urgent basis. This is going to become potentially not only an issue for Ukraine's defense, but um, for our preparedness for Taiwan as well. 
And then moving to the you know, conventional issues of democracy promotion, we still don't have um, an assistant secretary of state for democracy, human rights, and labor. It took the administration two years uh, to appoint um, an undersecretary for public diplomacy uh, in a vital arena of struggle for freedom, which we have too much ceded to Russian and Chinese propaganda. And I think that um, we've just not had enough energy, attention, and high-level focus on the deep game of uh, democracy promotion and fighting for democratic values and um, norms and information and ideas. One last thing, you know, we did uh, participate in the creation, which is, I think, an enormously important development of an international fund for public interest media, because supporting independent media is absolutely critical to the cause of advancing and defending freedom, including in places like Russia, where these people leave, uh, go to Estonia or whatever, but then need the money to continue their operations. And I just don't see the high level commitment on the part of the Biden administration uh, to really making these things uh, work as uh, energetically and successfully as they potentially could. Thank you very much. I agree, I agree with that. And uh, I also appreciate the uh, responses to my question as restated by Andrea. I appreciate that, Andrea. But let me go back to something Larry said uh, in talking about Trump uh, and talking about, well, that's in talking about the course of uh, backsliding in the United States and how allies might be looking at that uh, and worried about that. Um, based on the horror show, uh, Sherry, that you had talked about that they had seen under Trump. How would you, uh, if you were um, a, a, a European decision maker um, and concerned about what the next few years might hold to include maybe Trump uh, becoming at least the Republican uh, nominee for president, how would you hedge? If you were that leader um, in, uh, in a European country, how would you hedge and how might you try to work with the U.S. to deal with that? I mean, this is kind of an inside-out question, but, but, but at a minimum, how would you hedge against uh, the U.S. continuing to, as we would describe it, backslide? What would you do? Or would you just sit there and cross your fingers and say, <laughs> I hope everything works out? Uh, how, what would you do? Sure. Well, look, I mean, the, the answer to that question has been clear for a long time, right, which is that Europe should have a stronger capacity to both act powerfully and in unison. Um, theoretically, that's what the European Union was supposed to give them, but it, it has not done so in the sphere of um, foreign policy for a whole variety of reasons. Now, under Trump, precisely because it once again highlighted that Europe should not count on the United States for not just its own defense, but for a leadership role in the world, you know, there was a renewed push under Trump among European leaders to kind of restart that effort, right, to give Europe a more unified and powerful voice. Right. I would say that despite a, an increased recognition under Trump that that was necessary, the steps to do that have been somewhat minimal. Um, now, I understand why this is a long term effort and, you know, changing something in the space of a few years that has been as ingrained as, you know, sort of not being a leader on foreign policy issues, that's hard to change. But 
you know, again, that is what needs to happen, right? Europe needs to develop a more unified voice, the ability to act collectively um, uh, in a more powerful way, um, potentially militarily, unfortunately, but just more as a kind of diplomatic force advocating for democracy, for peace, and for freedom across the globe. Um, and certainly if we get another Republican administration under Trump or another um, neo-isolationist Republican, that is going to be absolutely necessary. And I sincerely hope the Europeans can do um, a better job of that because without another strong advocate for democratic values and for freedom in the world, that those causes will, will suffer significantly. Yeah, all good points. Um, Larry, we're getting sh a little bit short on time, and I want to come back to this idea of breakthroughs that you mentioned earlier. As you look around the globe, you already mentioned Turkey, but what other places, what other hot spots are you watching that may be bellwethers of how things are going to go in the coming year? Well, you know, the big home run for freedom in the world that I think is actually potentially imaginable uh, is regime change in Iran. Um, we can't end this program without paying tribute uh, to the courage and persistence, I mean, really extraordinary courage of Iranian women and young people who for five months in the face of arrests, in the face of, face of secret torture and detention centers, in the face of uh, harassment, brutal intimidation, uh, have come out to protest in defiance of the regime. I think the regime is in very deep crisis um, there are signs of splits in the regime. I, I think the democracy movement is far away from the level of organization and strategy that would be necessary for success. But who knows, maybe not that far away. And what I would like to see is more focus, creative, outside-the-box focus on how we could get the Iranian people uh, some of the informational tools, um, maybe satellite uh, communications, uh, you know, the Starlink uh, internet communications that the Ukrainians have used, or other creative tools to be able to organize uh, and mobilize more effectively and maybe more safely, uh, and uh, to ratchet up the economic pressure on uh, the Islamic Republic to at least end its, um, its wave of repression. Um, there are negotiations in Venezuela uh, in advance of um, the presidential and national elections that are supposed to come next year. Of course, M Maduro seems very entrenched uh, and that looks like a long shot, but you know, these things always look like long shots uh, until they're not. So um, uh, we, do, we don't know when a, um, you know, when a situation may suddenly turn because of a regime split or because of Ayatollah Khamenei dying uh, or something like that. Uh, but uh, those are two countries that uh, I would wanna watch. 
I want to pick up on something that Sherry mentioned about Europe working in unison and in concert. So, you know, throughout the war in Ukraine, we've seen both Orban and Erdogan play disruptors and hobble European consensus on responses to the conflict. So we have a question from one of our listeners about this very thing. What can or should be done about democratic backsliding among countries like Hungary and Turkey, who are already in key Western institutions like the EU and NATO? So Sherry, kicking it over to you first. So that's a that's a great question and a really tough one. As, as a person who spends a lot of time sort of trying to understand Europe, watching democratic backsliding in places like Hungary and Turkey is particularly painful because of course the European Union, which Turkey is, is not a member of, but had aspired to be a member of, the European Union was founded partially to protect democracy in Europe after the Second World War. That is to say the original process of European integration was part of a multi-pronged effort to protect democracy in, um, in Europe. And so to see democratic backsliding going on both within the union itself, that is to say Hungary and other parts of Eastern Europe, and then on its periphery is particularly painful because it should be there to protect and promote democracy. I mean, look, what can the European Union do? This gets back to the question we discussed a little bit before briefly, which is, you know, in order to be able to act um, as a powerful unified actor, institutions and norms within that union have to change. Hungary has been a real spoiler in a whole variety of ways, not only in, again, it's democratic backsliding, but it's it's sort of um, pseudo support for Russia. And Erdogan, of course, is also really quite um, obstreperous. He's played his cards very well. He's now, for instance, holding up Sweden's entry into NATO for reasons that we don't have to discuss. And there's very little that can be done to really sanction him. So figuring out ways for Europe to be able to hold um, its members more accountable um, on democratic questions would be wonderful. I will say, though, just to end on a somewhat more positive note, that I do think that the taming, so to speak, or partial taming of the far right in Europe, parties like Georgia Maloney's Brothers of Italy, the Sweden Democrats, Marine Le Pen, I think we should not discount the indirect role that the European Union has played in those kinds of things. And that is that is a strong you know, if indirect democracy promotion um, impact of the European Union, these parties, again, started off much nastier than they were, much more anti-Europe than they were. They have now kind of moderated those stances and part, but not all of that, does have to do with um, the structure of the European Union. But surely figuring out ways to deal with backsliders and um, meddlers like Erdogan and Orban would be something that uh, I would hope that European unions are think European leaders are thinking very carefully about. And Larry, maybe just uh, your final thoughts on like what would be at the top of your recommendation list if there were one, two, three things that you wish, especially the Biden administration, would pursue in order to strengthen democracy and par particularly. Um, to push back on this creeping authoritarianism and democracies issue. Um, what what are a couple of recommendations oh, that you um, keep to highlight? I'll, I'll give you two recommendations, uh, Andrea, one short-term, one long-term. The short-term is that I think we need a more forward-leaning strategy of um, walking and chewing gum at the same time. 
uh, and uh, elevating a second track to the security cooperation or uh, hard interest track that we have in our very important relationships now uh, with countries like India and Poland, which I, I think could be grouped in, in maybe similar categories. They're immensely strategic important for, uh, important for our alliance structures and common aims, but they're both backsliding democratically. And um, we always uh, shrink from candor out of fear uh, that it will come at the expense of our strategic objectives, but they need us too. So I often think that we have more scope to be forthright, not just in private, we have no awareness of what's being said in private, but I'm not optimistic about what's being said in private, uh, but in public as well, uh, respectfully, but substantively. The second thing is long-term, uh, and we haven't really had <clears throat> a chance to talk about China's long-term game here of sharp power and propaganda and trying to penetrate democratic uh, institutions and reshape the world to its liking. But they are playing a very long game, and we need a long and deep game uh, of fighting for a level and truthful uh, information sphere. I spoke about one aspect of that. And, you know, re reigniting uh, the battle of values and ideas. Um, I think it is a terrible pity that the United States shut down in the 1990s the U.S. Information Agency um, but we now have its remnant in the State Department um, uh, in the office of the Undersecretary for Public Diplomacy. And we have a public diplomacy cone uh, in, in the United States Foreign Service. And it doesn't have the mission, energy, imagination, um, or broad and kind of forward-leaning uh, vision of trying to work with Democrats around the world to advance and support democratic knowledge, ideas, and values in multiple languages. And I actually think this is a relatively easy lift uh, conceptually if we'll just put the energy and will into it. Yeah, we could have used a lot more time. We really barely touched the brushed the surface on China. But um, this was a really excellent kind of overview of where things are, which is exactly what we were hoping for. Um, and hopefully we'll have a chance maybe to check back in with you, you know, at the end of the year and kind of take stock on on where things are. And hopefully we will have some breakthroughs to discuss. Um, so thank you both for joining us. We really appreciate it and hope to have you back soon. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.